0: On the heels of the relationship series, uh, we're moving into a new series on 1 Peter, uh, an epistle uh, from the Apostle Peter. And we're going to call this series uh, Concrete Hope. Uh, d- definitely the phrase ha- has a sort of jarring uh, aspect to it. But, but what we mean when we say concrete hope, what theologians mean when they say concrete hope is this sense of the difference that hope makes in our lives, the way that it, there's a tangible difference. And certainly in the Christian church, that's the intention. When we say the word hope, what we mean is that based on the way God has acted in the past, we have great hope for the future, which makes a difference now. Based on all the things that we have seen God do in the past, and for Peter, he saw the movement of God up close, uh, the movement of God through Jesus, the movement of God through the resurrection and the launching of the church, something that Peter had a front row seat for. And because of all that ha- that had happened in his past, he had great hope for the future, which made a considerable difference for the way he lived now. In fact, the setting for this letter is something like 60, maybe, maybe as late as 62. And if we're keeping track historically, what we might make note of is that things are about to get very difficult, especially in the city of Rome. That's where Peter is. Uh, He actually mentions at the end of the letter that he's writing them from Babylon, which is a sort of theological geography. He means to say, I'm at the heart of it. I'm at the heart of it. I'm in Rome. And at this point, Nero is the emperor. And we're just a few short years away from Nero launching a pretty acute, extreme persecution. Now, one of the things that's true about persecution in church history is that it's not, generally speaking, happening all at once everywhere. There are a few of those that are pre-universal within the Roman Empire. But most of the time, the persecutions would be sort of pockets, moments where a a local magistrate saw that uh, the Christian movement was taking off and they they sought to sort of stamp it out. Uh, And Nero, of course, is going to launch that uh, on the heels of the fire in the city of Rome. So Peter is in Rome. In fact, it's pretty safe to assume that Paul has been there by this point too. Um, And they are experiencing the the leading edge of what's going to be a very extreme persecution. And for Peter, he's thinking of his sisters and brothers, uh, of the churches that have been planted around the Roman Empire at this point. Uh, He's thinking particularly of an area that we might call Turkey, that they would think of as sort of the Asian province. He says very early in the letter who the letter is for, a group of churches in Asia Minor. And it seems that he's earnestly trying to prepare them for the storm that he thinks is coming. So he, he launches out on themes like salvation and hope. And then the tangible difference that this hope makes. Peter has shifted his paradigm. We saw in the book of Mark that Peter is sometimes not always on board with what Jesus is doing. It's Peter who tried to stop Jesus from going to Jerusalem to get killed. it's, It's Peter who swings his sword in the garden, trying to leverage a different kind of power than Jesus had in mind. But what we find in 1 Peter is that his paradigm has shifted. And it seems that he's really sensitive about the idea that maybe not everybody's paradigm has shifted the way it ought to. He wants to impress upon the church that Jesus's life is the paradigm through which we live our own lives. Jesus's response to suffering is the example for us to be how we respond to suffering. So for us, what we're sort of realizing is that we may have a challenge on our hands something that maybe the first hearers of this letter wouldn't have had, were used to it. This is sometimes damaging to the Christian life, having become used to it. So what we thought might be worthwhile as an exercise is just to leverage a sort of baptized imagination and think, what would it be like to actually be the first hearers of this letter? To to peel back the layers of history, maybe even our own personal history, and think, what about the first hearers of this word? Uh, We sort of imagine a a bit of an archaeological dig that way, digging down through all those layers of history to the the earliest moments, to the artifacts themselves. And so what we sort of imagined as we were working through this is this idea that uh, because the church, in uh, in this case, Cappadocia, would have been largely Gentile, uh, with some Jewish heritage as well. Um, We imagine that maybe two people having a conversation about Peter's most recent letter would be maybe coming from different places, Uh, imagining perhaps one of them is a person of Jewish heritage who's come up through the synagogue and has been convinced by Peter and others in their argument that God's movement has included the Messiah who is Jesus Christ. And we imagine that there's also others with a different kind of background, a Gentile background coming from maybe sort of pagan mystery religions or, or uh, some kind of pagan idol worship, and they're shedding their old ways of life, and they're putting on the hope that is in Jesus. So what we thought we might do this morning is actually kind of work through that. This doesn't rise to the level of acting, of course, but it's basically an imagining of, it, it wouldn't. I'm the wrong person for my family.
1: I've been working on it. <laughs> He's
0: better than I am. <laughs> I'm the wrong person for my family. You choose the other four from my family, and you're set. <laughs> Me, I'm no. It's not right. So uh, it's just sort of a, a Christian imagining of what would yeah. the things be. What would they be wrestling with as they as they worked through this letter for the first time? Now the uh, the letter would have arrived uh, with the sort of courier, and likely the first time that they uh, heard it would have been sort of corporately. Uh, that's uh, sort of scholarly consensus that the, the, the way that the letter was meant to be experienced first, each of these letters throughout the New Testament, would be a courier reading it out to God's church. And then, of course, people asking questions to the courier who came from the Apostle Peter mm-hmm. or, in other cases, the Apostle Paul or from James, and really wrestling through the truths yeah. that the Spirit of
1: God had put on display. Yeah. And we'd be, reading, we'd be reading from a copy. They would have taken the original... Uh, and pressed it on to the next city. That's how it worked. Try to keep it as <laughs> digital as possible, right? You want to send your copy on. Uh, so they would copy it, and then we'd be sitting there looking. And uh, Adam and I were imagining we've, we've just heard it read publicly by the courier, and now we're sitting down. And maybe, like Adam said, he's a, a, a Hebrew uh, that's been in the faith for for decades and has made the transition. But I might be a Greek or a Gentile that's relatively new to all this stuff, and so. We sit here and we uh, go back through it and read it and try to drink it in, and we wanted to invite you into that space to keep it fresh and new, like fresh and new, yeah. fresh and new. And actually, it might be worth mentioning
0: why they would have copied it and sent the original on. There's uh, there's early voices in the in the church history that say that often when letters arrive, they they came with an obvious movement of power, that 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 things started breaking out in the church, and they said, okay, this isn't just any old letter from our friend Peter. There's something different happening here. We need to make sure that this is moving on through the circuit of churches. Everyone needs this. And so the, the copy is made because they know, okay, mm-hmm. this is something we need to, to work through, to, to, to come into alignment with God is
1: moving in this moment. And so Peter starts, as you would expect, with that weight and says, this is Peter, an apostle, of Jesus Christ. Think about that. Just think about that. We have a letter. You have a letter. It's, it's bound together in a canonine version, version that you call the Bible. But when you open to that, you have a letter from an apostle of Jesus. We're reading this letter from a man who uh, has firsthand experience of who Jesus is and an understanding of what the gospel is. And he says, To God's elect, exiles scattered throughout the provinces of Pontius, Galatia, Cappadocia, which is where we imagine we might be, Asia, and Bithynia. And this is where Peter is anticipating that the letter will go and the path that it will go on. And so here we are in the middle of the distribution. And it says, you've been chosen according to the foreknowledge of God. He is jumping right to the gospel and saying, where you are, wherever you are in the churches that are scattered don't mistakenly uh, imagine that you are lost, uh, that God has forgotten you. You are chosen by the foreknowledge of God, the Father, the sanctifying work of the Spirit, to be obedient to Jesus Christ and sprinkled with His blood. He says, grace and peace be yours in abundance. Grace and and peace is yours because you've been chosen by God, and this has been sealed by the Spirit, and you are led by the by the Son Jesus Christ. He he alludes to what we refer to as um, the Trinity.
0: Right, right. I mean, the Spirit of God in the Old Testament certainly is moving, and as Christians, we might look back through the first testament and and see. Uh, the, the signs that God intends to do something incredible uh, through the Messiah who will come, that is Jesus. But uh, here it becomes clear that the, the, the doctrine of the Trinity is already forming, already being solidified in the earliest church. And it's not a word that we find in the New Testament. It's not as though you find James or Peter or Paul saying, okay, here's this thing we need to come to, to, to recognize. But it becomes uh, absolutely Clear. essential because absolutely. It's, it's clearly laid out here. And so we, we can imagine Peter um, having been with this church in, in Cappadocia saying, you know, I, I, I walked with Jesus when he talked about God the Father. Mm-hmm. I was there in the garden when he said he was going to send his spirit. And I watched his, his, his sacrifice on our behalf, our, our behalf. And I think also for, for me, if, I, if I'm taking the role of somebody who has come up through the synagogue, I might immediately be um, alert to some of the language he's using here. Mm-hmm. First Testament language. Yeah, You're chosen. I'm sitting next to a Gentile brother in the faith, and Peter is leveraging a, a word for both of us. On both our behalfs. we're chosen ahead of time. A phrase that had been applied to Israel, of course,
1: throughout its history. This would be great news for me and really odd news for him that I am chosen, I'm part of the people of God somehow. Very difficult to adapt to, I would say. Yeah, it was difficult for
0: Peter to adapt to. I mean, he was one of the guys who experienced it most. You think about Acts and the chapters nine through 11 where God says to him, don't you dare call something unclean that I called clean.
1: Referring to Gentiles and Greeks and non-Jews. And he immediately
0: starts to press into that, uh, that ministry uh, and then he's on the leading edge of it at Acts 15 at the Jerusalem Council, where the big question is, do you have to be Jewish to be Christian? And, and Peter listens to Paul and Barnabas as they make their argument in Acts chapter 15, and he stands up at the end of it and he says, listen, brothers, listen, sisters in Christ, you don't have to come through the Jewish, the cultural uh, layers to be, to be Christian. We ask only a couple of things. We ask for you to honor the poor. And that's the moment where Paul says, that's the very thing I was eager to do. Yeah. So Peter was on the leading edge of it. But actually, I think it's fair to assume that as church leaders in Cappadocia, we would be aware of Paul's letter to Galatia. Sure, which would far be away,
1: 20 years old by this point. About tonight, 20 years old. Yeah.
0: In that letter, Paul told us that he actually confronted Peter because Peter had shrunk back from having fellowship with the Gentiles. So it's quite clear that maybe somebody in my position would actually struggle to sort of wrap my mind around this. Would my paradigm have shifted far enough to say, wait, Yeah. the people of God that are chosen isn't
1: just genetic. Or that they are the ones that are sprinkled with the blood of Christ, right? See, he pulls what Jesus did for all of these people right at the end. He's like, yeah, he died for all, not, not just uh, the Jews, um, we we would probably be sitting here going, this isn't the Peter. Right. You know, this is a not. You know, this isn't really what I remember to be Peter. And we would, and as we read, through, if we would read through this letter, we would also see that it's pretty polished Greek. Yeah, right. This would be a pretty. Po- this is pretty polished uh, verbiage, to which we would also think this also doesn't this seem is, like this Peter. This is Pete. This is <laughs> this Peter. Is, right. And truth be told, Peter would have had help. This would have been a collaborative effort to write this letter. Silas would be with him and others, and Peter would have the firsthand experience. The apostle, he would be relaying it, and maybe a scribe as well would be putting this together. So we know for sure the content is from Peter, but he may not have uh, been solely uh, a part of uh, scripting it out. Not that he didn't speak Greek. Uh,
0: It's very likely his time in Caesarea growing up. Uh, that he was able to speak Greek, probably even fluently. There's signs in the book of Acts that he is surprisingly eloquent, actually. Uh, the Sanhedrin says, what is this fisherman? Who is this guy? Yeah, who is this guy? Hey, yeah, the fruit's real, by the way. It's can delicious. Some. It looks very and There's
1: good. Dr. Pepper in here if you want to.
0: I was going to eat some, but mouth noises through a microphone don't sound oh, very grape. appealing. Is that a coconut?
1: It is, and <laughs> if you can break that open, you can have that too. I went, I went above and beyond with <laughs> the fruit. You really did.
0: And he also <laughs> built this table. I'm not even lying. Built this I couldn't book. find yes. one that I
1: like the way it looks. So. <laughs> All right. Um, sorry, I interrupted you with the fruit. Oh,
0: that's you did that. That's true. Um, well, <laughs> I was just saying, uh, it's, it's not as though Peter couldn't interact with people in Greek, but certainly the polished nature of this um, is, is, is really actually satisfied at the end when we do find that Silas is involved and Silas gives his greetings as well.
1: So Peter goes on. He says, praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ in his great mercy He has given us new birth into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead and into an inheritance that can never perish, spoil, or fade. This inheritance is kept in heaven for you, and maybe I should stop there. Um, we would stop there because he he's talking about inheritance again and again that we have something now and they would have been again very familiar with uh, sacrificial type of rituals but they were dead sacrifices they didn't come back to life uh, they they stood in the gap for sin but here we have something that is living uh, he was Jesus was sacrificed but now he has been risen and we have an inheritance which would be very meaningful for uh, well. <laughs> There would be a few people in the church that would have had their own inheritance, which really the blessings of God uh, to the Hebrews was land and children, land and children. And if you had those things, you had an inheritance and you could pass it along. But it wouldn't, it wouldn't be all that unusual, particularly under the occupation of Rome, that that inheritance would be threatened. Uh, There's infertility, uh, all sorts of things that would make you feel as though you have no inheritance or that you're losing your inheritance. And here he is saying, you have a new kind of inheritance. You've been born into a family here where your inheritance cannot be taken away from you. It does not perish. It will not spoil. It is not of this world. It's kept in heaven for you. You can bank on it. And actually, maybe as leaders in the church, this would... Would,
0: would evoke some strong emotion because we know for our people this is extremely good news. Mm. Socioeconomically, Peter seems to be indicating that he's writing to a group of people that are without rights. Now, he certainly does actually directly address people who are enslaved later in the letter, but he also is talking about them as aliens, as, as, as foreigners in this land. And this is sometimes spiritualized. Um, by us 2,000 years later, and I don't think that's inappropriate, but as we're imagining, wait, for these early Mm -hmm. listeners, how are they hearing this? And one of the things is they're hearing that the church is now adopting the language and the status of Israel, but a second thing is they're saying, that's right. We are actually aliens. We have no rights. We are on the margins of society. Mm -hmm. It's very clear that the, the early church in this area was likely to have been uh growing out of the synagogue and out of the margins of society yeah. people drawn to the truth that god loves them mm-hmm. that they can have an inheritance that they would never have dreamed of otherwise yeah because they were before this pressed yeah. to the margins of society
1: yeah the church the church that would be worshiping in capodicea would be worried about what's going on in Rome. They would have seen what would happen in Jerusalem and why they were scattered in the first first place. And so if they had an inheritance, they would anticipate they're going to lose it. But really the majority of people, even Jews, didn't even have an inheritance. So this is meaningful from beginning to end in the church for the people of God.
0: Hope for the future because of what Jesus has done in the past, that actually changes the present. Mm -hmm. I think we experienced this, right? If you have something to look forward to, maybe it's a, a, a longer weekend or a vacation or even just getting home from work, doesn't that read back into the present moment? Don't you say to yourself, I can make it three more weeks. I, I, I can get to that week where we're headed to the beach as a family or I can get to five o'clock. Don't you read it back into the present? Mm. But these, the, this church is doing it on, uh, in, in, the, in the most appropriate way reading God's future into their present. Yeah, Reading the, the present through the lens of what God has done.
1: And how is, it, how is that inheritance secured? It's, it's, it's waiting for you in heaven. It's kept in heaven for you. It cannot perish. It cannot spoil. And he goes on. Who, he says, in heaven for you, you, the church, who through faith are shielded by God's power until the coming of salvation that is ready to be revealed in the last time shielded by God's power. And I circled power. As I'm reading through this letter and I see the word power and I think of Peter, again, I'm struck by how far he's come.
0: Yeah, well, not just even Peter because I'm thinking of you as maybe with a Gentile background having a very different understanding of what power looks like. Mm -hmm. You're coming out of the sense of, well, look what the Romans have done. They have swept across the Mediterranean. Look at that power. And certainly Peter might have, had similar thoughts. Mm. Uh, power would have looked like beating back the, the tidal
1: wave of Roman advance across the Mediterranean to regain the lands. And this is what we see in Peter's early years, right? He's following Jesus, he gets it, he understands the power of Jesus and he wants Jesus to leverage it. Uh, and you can see it in Peter's actions. He, you know, he draws the sword, he calls Jesus to come. When, when Jesus, why does Peter deny Jesus three times? Does it say explicitly? No. But you've got somebody who has a particular perspective on power and sees Jesus at this crescendo, laying it all down. And it's probably infuriating. It's at least disappointing. Peter was seeing, at least initially, Jesus as someone who could take power and push back the tide, save the day, and... That's not the way he went. And yeah, so Peter if, is adapting. He's changing. He's right? seeing it in new ways.
0: If, if 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 God is setting Peter aside to be a leader in the early church with, which he obviously is, he's also setting Peter aside to play a part in in persistently moving these people of God away from a former understanding of what power means mm-hmm. to one that is Jesus-shaped, cross-shaped. Mm-hmm. Mm. Uh, and I think it might be even strange for a Gentile. I don't, I don't know what your perspective is
1: on that. Yeah, I, I, I can't even imagine. And particularly having not been associated with the language of Messiah, mm-hmm. not looking forward to those sorts of answers, hearing rumors about this one who was resurrected, I think it would, a, it would be a stretch for me. But the Spirit of God clearly would have moved me in some way within the confines of this church to believe these Men and women that were singing his praises. I've, I've probably either seen or witnessed a, a martyrdom of some sort too. So I've seen the believers lay down their lives for what they what they believe. Uh, but, but I, I've always assumed that Peter is is one of the ones that that God has highlighted um, in our history because he had so far to go. Yeah, amen. <clears throat> he uh, had uh, he was very raw, but he is continue to demonstrate humility to grow and to change and be transformed, and there's really no better type of person for God uh, to have a follower of Jesus be someone who's humble. Um, We oftentimes think as Christians that the best witness that we have to the world around us is to be perfect, and the best witness that we have is to be imperfect and still understand the grace and the mercy and the inheritance that's kept for us. And Peter has been and and was um, <laughs> just, I can't wait to see him in person Yeah, and experience this humility from a man as thunderous as he was.
0: Right. And actually, uh, one of the things that we might need to like recalibrate ourselves on is to s- to realize that this early church, hearing from Peter, would have had a context of other kinds of teachings and other letters uh, from philosophers of tremendous reputation. Mm. And you're, you're hearing you know, echoes of Aristotle and Plato everywhere you go, and you're, you're getting this neoplatonic movement. And for the first time in history, humility is being seen as a virtue. Mm-hmm. It is absolutely swimming upstream Against Greco-Roman culture to say that being humble is a sign of virtue.
1: Or any culture. I mean, it was the strong man who led the armies and conquered the other things. The thought of, you know, Genghis Khan getting off of his high horse literally and being humble would have been like, I'm resigning. You would never, ever, ever show any kind of learning or you would lose your leadership. You would lose your
0: power edge, right? But Peter's done it. He's gone, from,
1: yeah. he's gone from
0: rebuking Jesus and Jesus saying to him, you have in mind the things of man rather than of God, to standing in front of the Sanhedrin in Acts chapter 5, and they say, we told you to stop doing this. We told you to stop preaching about this Jesus character. And Peter says to them, I have to have in mind the things of God and not of man.
1: Radical the paradigm change. has shifted. For <laughs> yeah, him. yeah. And, and humility is one of those major paradigms. It's huge. So here he is, he's saying... You have an inheritance that can never spoil. It's kept in heaven for you. Uh, it's shielded by God's power. My question is, how do we make that practical? How do we keep this, right? Again, imagine you, you're new in the church. You're just gathering with this church, and you're like, what is this all about? And you, you've, you have this new understanding. And I think to myself, are we engaging it the same way? Does our life reflect the depth of understanding that is deserved, that says I have an inheritance. When we were talking yesterday, this is where you brought up, I, I was asking you, how, how do we keep it new? You remember what you said?
0: Yeah, I mean, there's a strange sort of two sides of the coin nature of my upbringing. I am steeped in the church. You would think that would be a tremendous advantage. I, I thank God for it. But are there ways that in my humanity, I have grown numb to the truth? I worry about that.
1: Mm.
0: Because I think when my true self is excavated by the Spirit of God, it's new every morning. Yeah. Right? Right. So I, maybe I think through the lens of Peter again. And maybe, maybe if I am in the, the, the church in Cappadocia, maybe I know Peter and I see how he kept it new. Mm-hmm. Uh, there's a sign in Peter's life in John chapter 21 that one of the ways it became new for him was confession. Yeah. Right. Uh, it's, it's, it's it's being you know it's occurring. He's being led through confession by Jesus himself. But it's confession. It's made new for him. He he comes to a new realization how much has been forgiven and how much love that ought to produce in him. Mm-hmm. So you think about confession on that one side. Well, you might think of confession as more than just confessing your sins, which I do believe keeps it new. It's, it's a, a renewed understanding of my need for Jesus.
1: Yeah, but this is the gospel. He's laying out the gospel here. And right. what better way to keep it new than to confess regularly that I need it, that I need him, that my heart continues to manufacture idols and draw me away from God. And on a daily basis, I need to confess Right. I need to confess. I need to embrace again this good, good news. And here Peter's confessing in more than one way. Yeah.
0: He has, of course, recurrently confessed his sin. He was humble enough to say, I was wrong about the way that this works with the Gentiles. And now he's also confessing faith. He's telling the story with every ounce of material he has available to him. He he with with the With the the months he has on hand, he is telling the story again. How does it stay new? I confess my need for the truth, and then I tell the story of the truth. I confess my faith,
1: too. I tell the story. Yeah, over and over again. So where are we? So he says, uh, shielded by God's power until the coming of the salvation that is ready to be revealed in the last time. And and this is the the, the letter like he's laying out the gospel and the letter turns right here, verse 6. He says, in all this you greatly rejoice. You confess the truth. You confess the gospel. You rejoice in this inheritance that is being preserved for you, that is being protected by your faith in the power of God. Rejoice though now for a little while you may have had to suffer grief and all kinds of trials. Kind of a Gloom. Yeah, he's like, oop, let me throw some cold water on this right. right now. Are we you all having a good time? I'm going to put a stop to that. <laughs> <clears throat> because where's Peter? He's in Rome. Where are we, ostensibly? Cappadocia. The, the persecution would be greater in Rome. Just like, just like in today's world, what happens in this city ends up gravitating out to the suburbs and maybe gets as far as the rural parts of our, our world. Same that what was happening in Rome, you could you could bet it's going to take on an, uh, a certain amount of fire and power, and it's going to move outwardly. So Peter's saying, whew, I cannot even begin to tell you what's going on here, but you better brace for it. It's coming. Nero is on a rampage.
0: But he has a different perspective on it, doesn't he?
1: Yes. Not just to, something that he wants them prepare, to prepare for,
0: but he wants them to see it through a particular lens, which you can see if you keep reading there in verse 7. Yeah, go ahead. These have come so that the proven genuineness of your faith, of greater worth than gold, which perishes even though refined by fire, may result in praise, glory, and honor when Jesus Christ is revealed. Peter sees
1: there to be an opportunity. Yeah, this suffering is coming, but he pivots immediately. This is This can be to your advantage or is to your advantage. Right? Which is unique. If you do a survey of, of world views,
0: <laughs> and you think about the way people think We're about reality.
1: Right. We're suffering in the world view.
0: Yeah, it's like, it's the problem, right? Uh, you think about maybe ours, a sort of um, a kind of a materialism, you know, our founding documents. We Life, say,
1: liberty, and the pursuit of suffering.
0: Uh, <laughs> I think you have that wrong.
1: Yes. Uh, right. That
0: <laughs> You know what I mean? It's like, we state, here's our purpose. To pursue happiness. We, we have it at our foundational level. Suffering is the enemy. It's the problem. It's, it's, it's problem. to be avoided. A bigger house on a higher hill with a stronger gate to avoid suffering at all costs. Suffering is the defeater to that way of life. Yeah. But Christianity, although it's not alone in this, Christianity thinks about suffering differently as, as having as being available to God's wisdom, as being available to God's movement. Now, within Christian history, there's a conversation that says, is God purposing that to happen? Or is God bringing purpose out of that thing that happened? Either way, there's a redemptive value Mm -hmm. that Peter is insistent about, Mm -hmm. that this may be refining. James said it. Perseverance, hope, character, Leading, Paul said it. Yeah, Romans chapter five. Peter seems to be fully on board with this idea that 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 suffering is never vacant. It's never without purpose, without purpose or value because God is with us. Mm -hmm. If if Christ can bring purpose and and beauty out of the cross, which which Paul says in Colossians, he says. He made it an instrument of peace. He took the cross, an instrument of torture, and he made it into an instrument of peace. If, if Jesus can do that with the cross, mm-hmm. he can do that with what I'm going mm-hmm. through, what the church body is going through together. Peter trusts, has an active faith that what he's going through now can be used, will be used by God.
1: And, the, right. and the way our faith... Um, when our faith comes alive in the midst of suffering, Peter says, it proves the, your faith is genuine. It, it, it is the suffering where your faith is, our faith is distinctly on display, mm-hmm. which is a bit frightening in the midst of suffering. It, 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 it almost, if you're going to build an equation out of it, you would say, if it is our faith that is to be on display, then you can count on God orchestrating or permitting suffering in your life because the most important thing might be how your faith is exercised in the midst of that suffering. And the suffering can take on, I mean, you got to think about this in the context of your own life. What, what, what kinds of sufferings do you find yourself in the midst of? And is your faith being proven genuine at the top of the list of reasons that you might be there? As a a church, we could argue the last year has been a suffering of sorts as we have tried to acquire a place at which we can call a house of worship in Dublin. And here we are. One week, five days from closing, which, by the way, thank you for your gifts and your prayers and your support and your continued giving and how you've made it come about. But even in that, right, giving is a suffering of sorts. It is by nature a suffering. You've earned that. You've earned the right to keep it, and to give to something greater than ourselves is a form of suffering. Yeah. to. So-
0: to return to our imagined scenario, here's the here's the beauty from ashes of all of it. In the Greco-Roman world, suffering was a sign that the gods were mad at you. Mm-hmm. You hadn't praised consistently enough or worshipped loudly enough. They're mad at you and you're being punished. Maybe it's Poseidon sending an earthquake. Maybe it's Zeus with a lightning bolt. Maybe it's the, the gods of war tearing through your village, but they're mad at you and you deserve it. Mm-hmm. And actually, what's happening here is completely different. It's not a sign that God is punishing you, it's not a sign that you have failed. How could it be? Jesus suffered mm-hmm. and Jesus never failed. Mm-hmm. He never fails us. Mm-hmm. So, this is incredibly good news mm-hmm. that God isn't angry with us. Mm-hmm. That his mercy actually never fails even in the valley of the shadow of death
1: in the, yeah and when you say that i think of um i wanted to pass this along to you the freuds lost uh, jeff uh, if you know jeff and joy freud uh, jeff was in his 60s mid to late 60s passed away on wednesday he's been battling pancreatic canc- cancer Adam and I visited with the family this week. They have two, Nathan and Kara. Nathan's married to Tricia, GABA kids, GABA grandkids. Mm-hmm. And um, there's no bitterness, at the, uh, there's sadness at the loss, but uh, this was a man who <laughs> memorized books of the Bible.
0: Uh, there's S at the end of that
1: word. Books of the oh. Bible. <laughs> I've memorized verses. <laughs> it's like books of the Bible. And the grandkids have this foundation of faith from Jeff and Joy that is rich and deep and in many ways simple and profound uh, and humble uh, because of the way Jeff lived his life. Um, but we'll say goodbye to him um, yeah. Thursday.
0: With, a, with a, grief, a grief that isn't without hope. Yeah. Hope for the end. That makes a difference for now.
1: Yeah. Uh, Maybe as the worship team comes back up here, um, we could uh, tie this together this way as we read this last verse in this paragraph, this first part of the letter here. It says, "Um, so uh, this is proven genuine, your faith of greater worth and goal, which perishes even though refined by fire, may result in praise and glory and honor when Jesus is revealed. Though you've not seen him, you love him. This is Peter who... Who has seen him but you love him i feel like he'd be talking to me right there the greek you know i i and peter
0: heard jesus talk about this very idea that there will be people that will love jesus without having seen him he talks about this in the last prayers that he's praying with his disciples prior to Mm. uh, walking towards Mm -hmm. calvary Mm -hmm. so it's apparently stuck out to peter it's apparently impressed upon him that, that there's something remarkable happening. The Spirit of God is calling people who never saw Jesus to love Jesus.
1: It's beautiful. It's beautiful. And, and as we, we, we handle this letter from an apostle of Jesus, we read these uh, words, and he wraps up this section here. He says, you do, Though you do not see him now, You believe in him, and you are filled with an inexpressible and glorious joy because you are receiving the end result of your faith, the salvation of your soul. Now, for you, this would be a radical shift because you would have understood that the salvation of your soul would have come through your performance in religious things.
0: Yeah, unsettling probably. To a certain degree, yeah, I'd have to set myself aside and say, I could never have done it. I needed Jesus. And I'd also have to set myself aside and say, I actually am not different than my Gentile sisters and brothers. I'm not set apart from them. We're shoulder to shoulder.
1: Yeah, I, I am understanding that I am chosen. <laughs> I am, I am chosen from the non-chosen. He was the chosen. They were the chosen. Those Jews, they had God. They knew him, and they had um, the blessings of him. They had the, the history and the, and the stories of power and salvation, and, and they had it because they knew how to live their lives. And Peter's saying, it's not about your performance. You are receiving, It's and it's not future. Heaven's arriving now for you. You are receiving the result of your faith. Peter is imploring the church. Think of these things. Think of this man. Allow your belief to translate into something deep within you that is inexpressible. If I was uh, in Cappadocia and I had anything to say about it, I would be trying to gather the church back together again
0: yeah, after the up. reading. Don't give up meeting together. Yeah. yeah, it's a great leveling, isn't it? This is, this is how we know that the, uh, the sign of the Spirit is moving is that there's unity. Because people from all walks of life and all levels of society are meeting together. Yeah. are are giving voice to their faith and their inexpress inexpressible and yeah. glorious joy. Yeah.
1: We're all the same. So uh, we want to invite you to worship. And to remember you're part of something bigger than you. You are standing in a moment and worshiping and believing and and, and uh, uh, feeling the inexpressible joy that you have. And you are encouraging the ones that are near you yeah. and the ones on this stage. Do you know that the, the worship leaders on this stage need your worship so that they can worship? Yeah, what, it, a, what a
0: privilege to be the voice that your neighbor needs to hear calling yeah. them back again yeah. to what is true.
1: Your neighbor needs to see you worshiping, singing, expressing the inexpressible. The worship team uh, needs to hear you and see you and, and be moved by your belief. We're we're, we're all in this together. We're, we're all the same. They have been called to, to lead us in worship, but they are with us in worship. So let's stand. We're going to get this table out of the way. Um, And let me encourage you to worship in the fullest sense of the word.